with uh, Pastor Brendan uh, out this week. He's uh, dropping off uh, Brianna to uh, college in Florida. They're taking a whole family trip. Uh, you guys are, are stuck with me this morning, but thankfully, uh, the Word of God is the same. And so let's uh, open up to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse uh, 34. This is God's Word. This is the Word of our Creator and of our Savior. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that He had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked Him a question to test Him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, You are glorious. You are infinite. You are eternal. You are unchanging. You are perfect in, in love and in holiness. You are uh, the greatest thing. Lord, we can't fathom the depths of who You are, Lord. Lord, we confess that that we are so unlike you. We are limited, finite. We are weak. We are sinful. We thank you, Father, for your grace. We uh, depend on it this morning. We depend on, on Christ, that in Christ our sins are forgiven, that, that we have his righteousness, that you've given us your spirit, that you are changing us from the inside out to look more and more like you, to more and more reflect what you are like, to, to be uh, the image of God that we were created to be. And Father, we come before you this morning dependent. Lord, we ask that you would feed us from your word, that you would help us to hear your word, that you would use your word to, to change us, Lord, that you would use your powerful word to conform us into the image of Christ, that you would use your powerful word to uh, save sinners. Lord, we confess that we, we can't do those things, that that's your power, and we ask that you would work in such a way that you would show your power and your grace. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have that you are a good father that you don't give stones to us when we ask for bread. We ask for bread this morning, and we trust that you will provide it. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I have, um, I'm, I'm kind of a quirky person, if you didn't know that. And I, I, I have some things that are, I just find enjoyable that probably no one else does. And one of those things is 
I enjoy listening to the music that's played in grocery stores. There's just, there's something I just find hilarious or ironic. You know, you're walking through Walmart, you're, you're getting your, whatever, your, your biscuits and your, your gravy and your bananas, and, and all of a sudden you hear, you hear the Clash playing, right? This, this punk rock band from the 70s and uh, this band that's supposed to be, you know, anti-establishment, against the man, you know, cutting edge, you know, it is being played in a grocery store. It just, it just cracks me up. And so often I listen to the music that's played in grocery stores, and I know that's strange, but I do it. And it struck me the other day, I was, I, was, I don't remember if it was Safeway or Walmart, but I was walking down the aisle, and, and, I, and I heard um, uh, Tina, Turner, Tina Turner. And she has this song, uh, What's Love Got to Do With It? And I don't recommend the song. Uh, but there's this line in the song that keeps repeating. And she, she keeps saying uh, that love is a second-hand emotion. Love is a second-hand emotion. And it's, it's repeated throughout the song. And I, I was just thinking, th- this is very interesting, right? A very sort of vanilla place, like the grocery store. You, you have this teaching going on, right? That, that's teaching something. This song is teaching something about what love is. And it's being re- repeated over and over again. That, that love is a second-hand emotion. That love is a second-hand emotion. That love is a second-hand emotion. That, that got me thinking, you know, what, what, what is love? This is, this is pretty important for us to define words, right? The, the world around us does a very good job of defining words and teaching those definitions through music, through uh, movies, through books, through uh, Various things, and, and, and often we can just start to assume things. We can assume things about the meaning of words or the, uh, what something is, and, and one of those things that we can assume is what love is. And so I was thinking that it's important that we have a biblical definition of what love is, right? Because we live in a culture that is seeking to define what love is. We live in a culture that is doing a very good job teaching their definition of what love is. And in one way or another, we're affected by that. You know, is, is, love, is love really a second-hand emotion? Is love even just an emotion? Is it just a feeling? Is it just this sort of subjective experience that we only feel internally? Or can we objectively define what is or what is not loving? Can we look at the actions of someone else and, and be able to say that thing is loving or that thing is not loving? Is there a standard that would tell us what is or is not loving? And again, our, our culture has its standards of what is loving or what is not loving. One of them, uh, like the Tina Turner song, is that love is merely a feeling. It's only a feeling. It only happens within here in your, in your heart. And so if that's the case, if that's the standard, right, that's the standard, then if I have good feelings towards you or if, if you 
make me feel warm and fuzzy inside, or, or even it, maybe I, I desire good for you. I have uh, this strong desire for good for you. If that's the standard, then I'm loving, right? If, if love is only a feeling, if I have the feelings, then, then I'm loving. Or, uh, the other side of that, if someone makes me feel those sort of warm, bubbly feelings or uh, that sort of thing, then I can say, well, they're being loving toward me because I have the feelings. Right? If the standard is the feelings, then we define uh, what love is based upon that. And that's one of the definitions our culture gives, that love is merely only uh, a feeling. It's a subjective thing. Another definition our culture gives is that love is affirming someone else. Love is affirming someone else. So, uh, whatever you do, as long as I'm affirming what you're doing, if I'm saying, hey, great job, you know, give you a pat on the back, I'm proud of you for doing that thing, and, and I'm affirming you in all that you're doing, then our culture would say that that's loving, right? And so, on the other side, if, if someone is not affirming what I'm doing, if someone doesn't agree with what I'm doing, if someone even says that what I'm doing is wrong or bad, according to that standard, if that is the standard, that I'm not being loving. If the standard is affirmation. That's a definition our culture provides, right? And we can see that. Because the moment you don't affirm what someone does, how do they interpret that? You say you're not being loving. They've believed this definition of love. Another definition of love that we see is this sort of this generic uh, just being nice in any way that doesn't bother anybody or, or ruffle someone's feathers, that uh, as long as you're well-liked, as long as you don't do something that someone doesn't like, as long as you just a general sort of nice, and being nice is a good thing, they would say you're being loving. And so, again, on, on the other side, if you do something that uh, doesn't feel good or if you do something that uh, makes you unlikable, based upon that standard, you'd be unloving. And lastly, I'm sure there's more. This is the one that really irks me. The definition that love is love. What, is it, what does that even mean? You know, English teachers, would, they didn't have good English teachers. You don't define a word with the word, right? Oh, love is love. This is just sort of this ambiguous, uh, we can't really define it, but as long as you think you're loving, you're loving, because love is love. It's not, not very helpful, is it? And frankly, it allows you to insert whatever you want uh, into to what you think love is. And so our culture has, has many definitions of love, and it teaches those definitions very well. And one way or another, we're, we're affected by those definitions, definitions. We can start to think that way. We can start to interpret the actions of each other where we're saying someone is being loving or not loving based upon the standard that our culture teaches us. And so the question for us this morning is, is there an objective biblical definition of love? Does God reveal to us what is loving 
and what is not loving? Does God give us a standard to know whether my actions or the actions of someone else is loving or not? Or do we have to buy in to what the culture uh, uh, defines love is? Now, this morning, we're going to see that the Bible does give a definition. It gives a, a clear, a, a complete picture of what love is. God's Word gives us the objective standard to know what is or is not loving. And it's a solid ground. And many of us know the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter, seven, uh, chapter 13, for instance. Love is patient. It's defining what love is, right? And so if, if I'm being impatient, that's not loving, right? So love is patient. Love is uh, and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And that would be a, that's a helpful definition of what, what true love is. It's a definition that often we put on our walls, you know, and frame pictures and, and that sort of thing. And, and it's helpful, right? You go through that. Those are objective things that I can, I can look at and I can have a test to see whether or not my actions are loving or they're not loving. This morning, that's a familiar verse. I want us to see, does the Bible, does God's Word give us any other standard? Does the Bible give us any more information other than this passage to know what love is? It's a helpful passage, right? But we want the complete picture. Is there more that God's Word tells us to let us know if what I'm doing is loving or or not? Does God, God's Word have a litmus test so I can look at my actions and see, is this loving or not? What is our standard? What does the Bible say about this topic? And I think our passage in Matthew gives us a whole lot of help in defining what love is and what it isn't. And so let's go ahead and reread it. What is love? The context of this passage, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are doing sort of a tag team uh, against Jesus, trying to test him, trying to slip him up. And so it's the, uh, it's the Pharisees' turn here in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they posed a question about the resurrection, and uh, Jesus made them look silly. They gathered together, and one of them, one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So see, here that, that Jesus says the first commandment, the greatest commandment, is a love of God. And this love is with all of our heart. And so there is a place for the, the emotional, right? We should actually love God with our heart. We should have a desire for Him to be glorified and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is a way of saying your whole being, all of you, 
The first and great commandment is to love God with all of who you are, with all of your capacity. This is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, verse 39. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Before we continue, I want us to note there's a priority. There's a priority in our love. A love of God is more important than a love of our neighbor. We often get that switched. A love of God is, is the priority. It's the most important thing. And that shouldn't be surprising because who is God? He's God. He's, he's the ultimate. He deserves everything from us because He's given us everything. And any time where we switch that, where we begin to, to think a love of neighbor is more important than a love of God, we're actually uh, we're committing idolatry, right? Where we put our neighbor on the throne and God is secondary. So I want us, just as a side note, the priority there is a love of God followed by a love of neighbor. But again, what is love? What does it mean to love God? A lot of people have unique ideas about that. What does it mean to love neighbor? What does that look like? How do I know? Well, verse 40 gives us a whole lot of help. On these two commandments, love of God and a love of neighbor, depend all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets, that would be a, a summary way of saying what we would call the Old Testament, the whole thing. And what Jesus is saying is that all the law and the prophets, all the things that we, all the commandments we find in the Old Testament depend on, flow out of a love of God and a love of neighbor. That those commands in, in, in the Old Testament, they're not just sort of made up rules. It seems like a good thing to do maybe. No, it, it actually, it shows us what a love of God and a love of neighbor looks like. They flow out of those things. They should be motivated by those things. Now, in order to avoid confusion, uh, historically, uh, Christians have noted that there are three uh, types of law in the Old Testament. You have the ceremonial law, the civic law, and the moral law. So just real quick, ceremonial law would be the laws governing the worship of the people. So the priests, uh, the sacrifices, things like circumcision, and, and those are uh, temporary. They're for a time. We, we have our own ceremonial law in the New Testament, right? Baptism, communion. These are things that God tells us to do in order to um, facilitate the worship of Him, right? And they're, they're for a specific time period. When we're in glory, we won't be baptizing people anymore. Right, those don't go on for eternity. When we're in glory, we'll have the better communion. We'll have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right, so they're for a time. And they do reflect uh, what it looks like to love God, but they're, they're temporary. You also see the civic law. The civic law would be the laws uh, governing the nation. So my favorite one is you have to build a roof around, or you have to build a roof around a roof. That would be weird. You have to build a fence around your roof, right? Well, why? Because 
In those days, people would hang out on the roof, and a way of showing love to neighbor was to build a fence around your roof so Joe doesn't fall off the roof tomorrow, right? It's for a time, right? That, that law doesn't continue on today. We don't have to build fences around our roofs, okay? And then the last one is the moral law. This is what we're going to look at for the rest of our time today. The moral law are those commands of God which reflect His, His goodness. They're, they're eternal. They, they don't cease. It's, for instance, the, the Ten Commandments would be a, a good summary of the moral law. Is, is there ever a time where it is good to murder someone? No, right? It's eternal. That would be unlike God. God cares about life, right? Is, it, is there ever a time where it would be okay to have a God other than God, to worship idols? No, it, it's eternal, right? It, it never ceases. It's a reflection of what God is like. God doesn't worship false gods. And so the moral law, that's what we're going to be looking at today, gives us great help gives us great help to know and to be able to define what love looks like. What does it look like to be loving toward God, the first greatest commandment? And what does it look like to be loving toward my neighbor, the second? Because the Ten Commandments, the moral law, flows out of, depends on love of God and a love for neighbor. And so, we're going to turn to, to Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we're going to start answering our question, what is love? What does it look like to be loving? How can I know if I'm being loving or not? Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 6. First, we're going to look at what does it look like to love God? How can we objectively define what it looks like to love God? While you're turning there, just a quick story. I, when I was going through college, I worked at Starbucks for eight years, which tells you how long it took me to get through college. <laughs> and uh, there was this, you have regulars. You have just customers that come in all the time. And there was this one, you know, uh, I, I would try to share the gospel with people. And there was this one guy who was convinced that he loved God. Do you know why he was convinced that he loved God? Because he woke up every morning with warm, happy feelings about God. Which is not a bad thing. The problem is, it was a God of his own making. It wasn't the true God. It was this ambiguous sort of guy-in-the-sky sort of God. And so, is he really being loving toward God if it's a made-up God and he has warm, happy feelings about it? Let's look. Verse 7, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 7. What does it look like to love God? You shall have no other gods before me. What does it look like to love God? It looks like to not have other gods before him. And so if I'm worshiping a made-up God, 
I'm having other gods before Yahweh, right? Before the true and living God. And that's not loving God. This command, you know, the inverse is true as well. Not only should we not have any other gods before God, but, but we should also worship God and God alone. Right? He alone is worthy of worship. Right? That, that's what it looks like to love God is, is to love Him alone as God. And as we think about that, we should be quick to realize that we don't love God the way that we ought to. That so often there are other things in our life that are more important than God. Maybe my financial security or, or my comfort or being well-liked or um, what, what, what have you, entertainment. Any number of things we can put in the place of God and say that this thing is the most important thing. And every time we do that, every time we do that, we're showing that we're not loving God. What it looks like to love God is to have no other gods before Him. Verse 8. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the second command. This is a second litmus test, a standard to see if we're actually loving God the way that we should. And what this command has to do with is, is how we worship God, right? The first command is the object of worship, God and God alone. The second command is how we worship. And he says, you're not to worship through carved images. If you remember um, after the, the exodus out of Egypt, uh, Moses is on the top of the mountain, and Aaron and the Israelites, what are they doing at the bottom of the mountain? They're building a golden calf. And the interesting thing is, that golden calf, do you know what they called that golden calf? They called it Yahweh. In their mind, they were worshiping the one true God, But what was the problem? They were trying to worship him through something of their own making. They were trying to worship him with their own sort of ideas of how to worship him. They were worshiping him through these idols, through these things that they had made, and they were worshiping God like the pagans worship their gods. And the second commandment is saying, don't do that. Don't worship me like the pagans around you are worshiping their gods. Don't worship me through something that you have created with your hands, something of your own making. We're to worship God in the way that He's commanded us to worship Him. Right? That He alone, since He's the object of, of worship, since He's the consumer of worship, if, if you will, He alone gets to tell us how we ought to worship Him. And God does, right? In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, there were specific ways to worship God. And to not do those things 
would have been wrong. It would have shown a lack of love towards God. And, and the same is true in the New Testament, right? God gives us things to do to worship Him. Baptism, communion, uh, to sit under the, the proclamation of His Word, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs uh, with one another, to assemble together as the body of Christ. These are things that God commands us to do. And so, how do we decide what to do here Sunday morning? You know, why, why aren't we burning incense right now? Because God hasn't commanded us, at least in the New Testament, to burn incense. Why, why are we right now listening to the preached Word of God? Because God commands us to do that, to commit ourselves to the public reading of His Word. And, and we start thinking through this, and if we miss something, we might be tempted to think, okay, well, at least we got this command down. Right? I do you know, worship other things other than God, but at least I come to church every Sunday and commit myself to what God has told me to do. And, but then you think about the command that we, we talked about earlier, that, that we're to worship God in spirit and in truth. Well, that's a whole other level, isn't it? That you and I are actually to worship God from our heart, to actually mean the things that we're singing that right now, we should actually care to hear the voice of God and to take it in. That we should worship Him according uh, to His Word perfectly. Well, now I start to see that standard of, of loving God, and I realize that there are times where I'm singing out with the rest of you guys, and my mind is somewhere completely different. That I'm thinking of Maybe what I'm going to have for lunch after, after service. And you think about that. I, I don't love God the way that I should. That I should worship Him with, 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 with all of who I am. That I'm to worship Him from my very heart. To actually mean everything I'm saying. To rejoice in the salvation that I have in Christ. To, and, I, and I fall so short of that. And as I see that standard, I realize again that I, I fall short of the love of God that, that, that I should give to God. We go on, verse 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We're not to treat God's name as if it were an empty sort of thing. And uh, the way I grew up was that bas basically that means you shouldn't say, oh my God, which, it, which is true. You know, we shouldn't take God's name lightly as if he was a common word, this God. But there's so much more, that, more than that, because that's, again, something we could probably check off the list. I don't, I don't say those words. But do we give God's name? Do we give God's word? Do we give God's works? Do we give the worship of God the proper weight it deserves? Or do we take these things lightly? Well, that, that starts to, to change it a little bit, doesn't it? Because often I can think of God as a small thing. I can think of His word, even sitting under the preaching of His word, as if this is just a, a light thing, a, a small thing, hearing the very voice of God in His Word. 
I can even make light of His works of creation and, and redemption and to, 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 to think that the Son of God died for me, took, his, took my sin upon His body and, and bore that on the cross, and, and I can think of that as such a small thing. I can, I can take it lightly. And I'm, I'm sure that you also have experienced the same thing. We can approach the throne of God through prayer, and, and He's approachable. He's our friend. He's our Father. But we can take that lightly, that we're approaching God Almighty. We can take God's name in vain very easily. And so again, that standard, as I see this standard, it's showing me not only what the love of God looks like, not only what true love looks like, but it's showing me that I don't measure up to that standard. Let me keep reading. Verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest, as well as you. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, I know there's a variety of views on, on the Sabbath, But there's one thing that we should recognize is that we should set aside one day to delight in in God. We should set aside one day to gather together as the people of God, to worship God, to hear God's voice. But so often I don't, even, even if we're here, you know, to delight in the Lord all day, or to, to, which really is, if there is any commandment that we should rejoice about, it's to be able to rest in God's finished works and to d- delight in them. And that's the reason that he gives here in Deuteronomy. Why, why should you keep the Sabbath? Because God has brought you out of Egypt. He's, he's rescued you. He's saved you. In, in Exodus, when the Ten Commandments are first given, he, he says, you're to do it because... Uh, God rested on the seventh day because that was the order of creation. And how much more, you know, the Israelites were rescued out of a human bondage and slavery in Egypt, but we've been rescued from something far more sinister than Pharaoh. We've been rescued from something far more damaging and, 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 and bonding than Pharaoh. We've been rescued from our own sin. We've been rescued from the grip that sin had on our soul because Christ died for our sin. And how much should we rejoice in that and, and, and enjoy God week in and week out, setting aside one day to, to do so? We have much to praise Him for. But the point is, you, know, you, you look at these commands and I, I know, there's again, there's different views on the Sabbath, and I'd be happy to talk more about that. But you look through these commands, 
And what we're being shown is this is what it looks like to love God. How do we define a love of God? Here it is. This is what it looks like to be loving toward God. And, and we should reach one conclusion. We, we don't love God the way that we should. You see, when we change love, when we define it as a, just a feeling, well, then it's, it's pretty easy to love God. Or maybe I'm just, if I don't have that feeling, actually, it can be scary. I need to try to work up that feeling so I know that I'm loving God. But if the love of God is this, if the love of God means worshiping Him and Him alone, giving Him the worship that He deserves, to, to give His name uh, the weight it, that it deserves, to delight in Him, I look at that standard of love and I see that I, I fall so, so short. And if I don't recognize that this is the standard of love, if I think it's something that I can achieve, what ends up happening? If I think that I've achieved a love of God, I really don't need a Savior, do I? Because I do love God with all my heart, soul, and strength. If I change the definition of love, that's pretty easy, isn't it? You know, I could, uh, <laughs> I could say that I could say that I'm, I basically have the skill, uh, hockey skill of an NHL player. Okay. Well, if I change the definition of what an NHL hockey player is to mean the Pee Wee Hockey League in Reno, well, then, yeah, I, I've achieved that standard. If we change the definition of what love is, we can make it something achievable, but have we really loved if it's a different standard? And all of this should, should show us something, right? It should show us that we have a great need, that you and I haven't met the standard of what a love of God looks like, that, I, that you and I must have a Savior, that you and I must have someone to save us from the penalty that we deserve for not giving God the love that He deserves, and we need someone to save us from the power of our sin, we need someone to change us from our very heart to work in us in such a way that more and more I actually do love God because in and of myself, I, I'm utterly lacking. We need someone to save us from the power and the penalty of our sins so that we can love God the way that we should. So this is, gives us a standard of what it looks like to love God what does it mean to love our neighbor? What does it mean to love our neighbor? What does a loving neighbor look like? Well, we, we continue. In verse 16, Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. What does it look like to love our neighbor? It's to honor the authority that God has put in our life. Father and mother being the most fundamental authority in society. That a love of neighbor means that we give the honor and respect that authority deserves. And, and again, you think of that commandment. You know, I just, I was a child at one point. Kids, this commandment, honor your father and mother. 
Do, do, did we do that? Do we do that? Do we give authority the proper honor and respect that they deserve? I think if we all remember our childhood, at the very least, we should know that we haven't. You know, talking back and uh, slamming doors and punching pillows. So have I loved the authority that God has placed the way that I should? No, no, I haven't. No, I haven't. And frankly, just to be honest with you, I, I can have real struggle with that when it comes to government positions. You know, that, that I can, that we should, it's okay to disagree, but to do that in a spirit of honor and, and reverence and that this authority God has placed here over me. That could be a difficult thing for, for Nevadans, I think. But we're to do it. That's what a love of neighbor looks like. Verse 17, you shall not murder. Okay, got it. Haven't done it. Check. All right. Well, no. <laughs> what does Jesus say? He says, if, if you have hatred towards your neighbor in your heart, you're guilty of murder. It's not just this outward action. It's, it's, it's my heart attitude towards people. And more than that, if we think about the inverse of that, not only should we be those who don't uh, unlawfully take away life, we should also be the, those who care about life, who seek to protect life, to promote life, to care about the li livelihood of others. Again, we don't measure up to that. Verse 18, you shall not commit adultery. Again, Jesus talks about this, right? It's not just the outward action of it. It's the inward heart of it. Do you have lust for, for another man's wife? Do you have lust for another uh, wife's husband? Do you actually care about the purity of someone else? Do we care about the purity of our neighbor? You know, often we can think of this as just about me. But really, you shall not commit adultery is talking about my neighbor, loving my neighbor. It's about them, their purity. I should care about the purity of, of my neighbor. I shouldn't do, want to do anything that would defile their purity. I should want to protect their purity. And we, we think about the things that, that we watch in our homes or the things that we don't do that we should and and do we really care to protect the purity of our neighbor? That would be loving. Verse 19, you and you shall not steal. We should care about our neighbor's possessions. Not uh, wanting to take what is theirs. And Paul writes, let the, you know, let the thief no longer steal. What is he to do instead? He's to work hard so that he can have something to give to others. You see, there's that inverse. It's not only don't steal, but also work so that you can provide for those in need. That we should care about the possessions of, of others. Verse 20, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. 
We should not say things that are untrue about our neighbor. We should care about the truth. We should seek to promote the truth, and also we should care about our neighbor's reputation, that we wouldn't want to do anything that would damage their reputation, that we would be those who would speak the truth in love to our neighbor. Now, if there's one thing that often is taken as not loving, it's that, isn't it? Speak the truth and love to your neighbor. Well, you said, you said I should trim my beard. That could be a very loving statement. I do need to trim my beard. <laughs> right? A love of neighbor. And then lastly, verse 21, And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. We should, we should be happy for the things that God has given our neighbor. We shouldn't desire it so much that we wish we had it, even if it means that they, that they didn't. We should be content with the things that God has given us. And again, you look at that standard of love. That's a high standard of love. To be not only content with what God has given me, but to be thankful for the things that God has given you. You know, how often do we see things that our neighbor may, may have, things that are shinier than what we have or bigger than what we have, and, well, I really wish I had heated seats in my car. Instead of, I'm thankful that God has given my neighbor heated seats in theirs. Again, we look at the standard of love. Once we start putting meat on what love looks like, once we start actually getting into the nitty-gritty of defining what love, love looks like, once we see what the love of God looks like, in these commands, we see that we, do, we don't meet the standard. I don't love God with all of my heart, soul, and strength. I don't love my neighbor as myself. I fall so short of those commands. And again, if we change the standard, there's some serious consequences to that. If we change the standard to something where we get to define what love is and we ignore what the Bible says about what love is, there's serious consequences. That if I think, again, that, that love is merely a feeling, well, I have, and again, there are feelings that go along with love, but if it's only a feeling, as long as I have these warm feelings towards someone, I must be loving them. And that's where you, we have this culture now that, that is able to say that uh, marriage not defined by what the Bible says, homosexual attraction, they can say that that's loving. But, but is it? Because one of those commands talks about caring about the purity of my neighbor. And so just because I have warm feelings towards someone, even, even if I actually desire what's good for them, if my definition of what is good for them is not based upon what God has revealed, 
I could be actually very unloving towards my neighbor all the while I have those feelings. If my definition of love is just affirming everything that you do, again, we could actually do some very hateful things, couldn't we? If I'm living a life of sin and you affirm me in that, are you loving me? If you tell me, hey, this is a sinful lifestyle, this will destroy you, and I don't, it doesn't feel good to me, are you still loving me? Is that love? To speak the truth to me? To care about the eternal destination of my soul? To care about how this sin will utterly wreck my life? It's loving. Whether or not the person receives it as love, it's loving. If we change the definition of, of love to just sort of not getting in anybody's way, we could avoid saying things that need to be said, couldn't we? You know, frankly, you know, as a, as a parent, sometimes it would be easier to ignore things that your children do. to not want another confrontation or, you know, have to go through this whole thing again. But that would be utterly unloving. And if we avoid speaking things that need to be said to one another just because we're fearful that that might not be received as love, because someone might think that we're being mean or we actually are not being loving. And there's a way to speak the truth to people. But if we change the standard, we miss the mark. If we change the standard, we could actually be doing some very hateful things in the name of love and think we're being loving. And so we don't want to be those who change the standard. Our standard for what defines love must come from Scripture. And as we look at the Ten Commandments, we get a clear definition of what it, looks, uh, what it means to love God and to love neighbor. And as we look at the Ten Commandments, here's the beautiful thing. We actually get a clear picture of what the love of God is. And if, if we change the standard, we actually miss something beautiful and glorious about who God is. If we change the standard of love to just a feeling, well, then God is love just means that he has warm, happy thoughts. We really miss the glory of God's love if, if, if we change the standard. That, that God's love is like this. That God, I mean, go, go through the list. That God for all of eternity has had no other gods before me. That the Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and the Son and, the, and so on and so forth. That that. In the Trinity, there's this such a love that has no competition. This is the love of God. That the love of God, that he, he cares about the worship, how he's worshipped, that he wants the Son to be worshipped, that the Father wants the Son to be worshipped rightly, and, and so on and so forth within the Trinity. That the Father actually cares about the name of the Son. That he gives weight to what the Son does. There's this, this love that God has within himself. You go on that, that God 
actually cares about authority structures. And if you're in a position of authority, you know, I look out here and I, I see some, your parents especially, but also those who are in, uh, uh, run businesses or, or work for the city, God actually cares about the honor of, of your position. That God actually cares about life. He loves us. Think about the way that He's loved you, Christian. He loved you so much that He has not only created your life, but that He has purchased eternal life for you. That's the love of God. That's more than just a feeling. That God enters into our world and lives in our place and dies in our place so that you can have eternal life with Him. That's love. That's the love that God has shown us. That God actually cares about our purity. He cares about your purity, Christian. That He's working in you to, to wash you with the water of His Word. That He's sanctifying you. That He's making you more and more holy. That's love. And that's good news for the Christian. That God loves me in such a way that He won't leave me the way that I am. That's the love of God. That God actually cares about our possessions in such a glorious way that He has purchased for us an imperishable inheritance that is laid up for us that no thief can steal, that won't be rusted out, and it's secure. Why is it secure for us, Christian? Because of the love of God for us. You keep going. God cares about the truth. God cares about the truth so much that He's given us this word that He reveals hard truths to us. He shows us, you think you're loving, but, but you're not. And then He reveals good news to us that you, that you must have a Savior and my Son is that Savior, that Christ came and died for you. He speaks the truth to us. That's love. And that God actually provides for us you know, everything that we have is from the hand of God. And we deserve nothing of it. It's all rooted in His love, His grace. And so if we change the standard, we diminish God's love. If we change the standard, we don't really need the gospel as much as we do. If we change the standard, we miss out on the glorious truth of God's love shown toward us in the gospel. the height and the depth of God's love for us. That the Father would send the Son, the Son whom He loves, to die in our place, to bear the wrath that we deserve. That the Son would willingly step into flesh and bones the infinite taking on finite. That He would live in a sinful world such as ours. That He would bear the wrath that our sin deserves. And that the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son would come and live within us, changing us, conforming us into the image of Christ, purifying us, removing the filth of our sin. That's love. That's love. 
magnificent, glorious love. To quote another song, that love is more than a feeling. It's something that goes out, that does, that has action. Love is not a mere emotion. Love is not affirming everything someone does. Love is not simply doing what people like. God is love. And we see what His love looks like in His commands. And so, some points of application for us today. We need to recognize that we do not love God and love neighbor the way that we should. And we should cling to Christ. That He is our only hope because we do not love God and love neighbor the way that we should. And that in Christ, through faith, our record is cleansed. My lifetime of not loving my neighbor and loving God the way that it should has been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. And I have His righteousness credited into my account that I have this perfect record of love because Jesus perfectly loved God and loved neighbor. Recognize your sin, cling to Christ. Secondly, out of that security that we have in Christ, because our sins are forgiven, we have His righteousness, nothing can take that away from us, let us pursue love. We were created to, to reflect what God looks like. This is our purpose. This is the image of God. We are created to show what God looks like. So let's pursue love because this is what God looks like. This is what we were created for. This is what the Spirit is working in us to accomplish. So let us pursue love. And the way that we do that is by pursuing the commands that He's given us. Pursuing Him alone as the object of our worship. Worshiping Him alone through the way that He has commanded. Delighting in Him one day of seven in a unique way. And giving the, the honor and weight that's, that His name deserves. Let's grow in our love for one another. How do we do that? Well, let's honor positions of authority. Give the honor that's due to them. Let us be those who care about life, the protection of it, the promotion of it. Let us be there, those that care about the purity of our neighbor, the possessions of our neighbor. Let us grow in love by speaking the truth to one another. And let us grow in love by being thankful for what God has given to our neighbor. That's what love looks like. Let's pursue it. That's what the Spirit is working in us. Third, as we pursue love, let's depend on the Holy Spirit to work in us more and more to love like He does. You know, there's that wonderful tension that we sometimes struggle with uh, that were to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God that is, work, is at work in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. We should pursue love. That's our responsibility. Why are we to pursue that? Because God is sovereign over us, working in us to, to do and to will. So move forward with it. Pursue it and depend on the Spirit because chances are today when you pursue love, you're going to fall straight on your face. 
I'm going to fall straight on my face. And so we, we look to God to work in us. We depend on Him to do that work that He's started in us. And then fourthly, the last point of application this morning. When we're trying to figure out if someone is loving us or not, let's make the Bible the standard of what that love is. That I know I, and I'm sure you, we can often change that standard to our feelings. And we need to stop a moment and think, this doesn't necessarily feel good, but is this person actively trying to love me? And we don't know their hearts, right? We assume the best. But our feelings are not the, the ultimate judge to know whether or not someone's loving us or not. God, God's Word is. I give the example, just one more example. I'm sure you've heard it before, but I just, I just think of when we've had babies. As a parent, you do some very loving things that doesn't, don't, doesn't feel good to your baby. Changing their diaper with a wet, cold wipe at 3 o'clock in the morning is not something that they prefer or like or it's probably rather uncomfortable, isn't it? But why do you do it? Because you love them. You care about them. So let's look to God's Word to know what is loving, not our feelings, not even what people necessarily like, but God's Word. Let us pray here that God would work in us, that more and more we would reflect His magnificent love. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that in Your Word You have revealed to us what love is, that You are actually the source of love. You, you define what love is because You are love. And pray that we wouldn't um, confuse what love is with our own conceptions of it, what our culture tells us it is. Help us to define love based upon uh, who You are and what You've commanded, that Your commands are not uh, just something you tell us willy-nilly, that they actually reflect what you are like. Father, we thank you for the love that you have d- demonstrated toward us. What, what depths we can't even fathom. We can't plunge the depths of the love that you've shown toward us in Christ Jesus, that you would send your own Son to die in our place the Son whom you have loved eternally with an unchanging love, that the Son would live and die in our place, that He would bear the the immense record of our sin upon Himself on that tree, that He would bear the justice that we deserve and that He would instead give us the justice that He's earned, that we have a reward imperishable because of Christ's perfect life. We thank You for the love of the Spirit who's sanctifying us, who's changing our hearts. We thank You that You care about us, Lord, that You, you actually desire uh, to take away our sin, not just the penalty of it, but the power of it and, and its effect on us, that one day we have a hope that the work uh, will be f- fully uh, enjoyed, that in glory we will have no more sin.
that we will perfectly reflect your love. And Father, in the meantime, we pray that you would help us, help us to pursue this type of love. Lord, work in us to, to show this type of love, not for our own glory, not so that we can get a pat on the back, but so that the glory of your love might be displayed to a dying world around us. And Father, we pray that you would help us to love our neighbor in such a way that we proclaim the truth of Christ to them, that we tell them of their great need, that they have sinned, that they have sinned against you, that they have rebelled against you, that we would give them the news they don't want to hear and tell them of Christ, the, the one that they must have, that we would love you so much that we would love to proclaim the name of Christ to an unbelieving world, that we would love our neighbor so much that we would love to proclaim Christ to them. Lord, I confess that often I have a cold heart. We ask that you would work in us such a zeal for the lost and for the glory of your name that will work out in the proclamation of Christ and him crucified. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. God is so loving, isn't he? Amen? Amen. There will be a prayer uh, couple up here if you'd like to pray with someone. I, I'll be in the foyer if you'd like to sign up for that conference. And other than that, I hope you have a wonderful Sunday. You are dismissed.